Well, last week was a, an interesting week when it comes to the subject of forgiveness. We had Philadelphia Eagles wide receiver Riley Cooper finding himself on Wednesday having to seek forgiveness when a video of him in a confrontation with a security guard using a racial slur went viral. And then Thursday, Cleveland, Ohio kidnapper Ariel Castro kind of, sort of asked his three victims for forgiveness, while at the same time making a lot of excuses for his behavior and painting himself as a victim as well in a bizarre, rambling 15-minute statement in court. And the responses were interesting as well. Cooper's teammates, a couple of Cooper's teammates made kind of vague statements about forgiving him as a teammate. And yet Thursday, the report was that no one on the team spoke to him at practice that day. And on Friday, it was reported that he has uh, temporarily left being involved in team activities. So... And Michelle Knight, one of the three women held captive by Castro, told him in the courtroom that day, your hell is just beginning. Told him that uh, the, the death penalty would be too good, too easy for him. Interesting week when it comes to forgiveness. As we've moved along through this series of sermons uh, this summer, biblical or bogus, we've, we've looked at some statements that outright contradict the Bible. When we talked about God helps those who help themselves, we saw that not only is that anti-biblical, that it can keep a person from seeking God's help because it makes them think they, they need to help themselves. And then last week we saw that saying God won't put more on you than you can bear creates guilt and hurt and confusion in people who are already suffering. And if you weren't here last week and you still think God won't put more on you than you can bear is in the Bible, you need to get a CD from last week. I won't bother to try to prove you wrong again this week. Just let the CD do it. But today's saying is a little bit different. So the phrase we want to look at today is both bogus and biblical. Now how in the world can that be? Well, maybe you've heard the statement. To err is human, to forgive divine. And maybe you've heard someone step a little farther out on the limb and say, well, the Bible says to err is human, to forgive divine. Well, that's bogus. The Bible does not put those words together like that. Uh, you know, it's not like that in the Bible. You won't find it there. But the truth is, it is a true statement. Because the Bible does say that all have sinned. Right? To err is human. It's the human condition. We've all done it. The Bible says there is none righteous. No, not even one. To err is human. And the Bible also teaches that it's part of God's divine nature to forgive. So to err is human. To forgive divine. It's bogus. You won't find it in the Bible in that form. But you do find those truths in the Bible. To err is human comes from the Latin. You already knew that, though. The Latin that says errare humanum est. It's at least 2,000 years old. But the first time we see the full phrase in the English language was in 1711 in an essay written by uh, uh, Alexander Pope, a British poet, when he wrote, Good nature and good sense must ever join. To err is human, to forgive divine. 
Now, here's what I know about forgiveness. Sometimes we need it, and sometimes we need to give it. It's true about all of us. It's the human condition. Every one of us experiences problems in relationships that hurt or offend us, or in, in which we hurt or offend other people. So we'd best learn how to forgive. And perhaps the best, uh, most powerful Bible passage about forgiveness is found in the book of Colossians, in chapter 3. If you want to turn over there, if you have your Bible, in, in the message notes folder in your bulletin, all of the scriptures that we'll be looking at this morning are there. And of course, they'll be up on the screen too as we go along. Let's read Colossians 3, verses 12 through 14. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive half the people who offend you. Forgive two out of three of the people who offend you. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. The message of the Bible, folks, is that God loves us and forgives us. It's a free gift. It's part of his nature. It's who he is. And it's no big surprise that most of us, if not all of us, find it way easier to accept God's forgiveness for us than we do to give forgiveness to other people. And yet, it's there. It's the standard there in verse 13. Make allowance for one another's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Well, you don't know what they said to me. I don't see it. There's no asterisk. There's no footnote. Forgive anyone who offends you unless they said what that person said to you. Forgive anyone who offends you unless they did what that person did to you. Unless they hurt you in the way that that person hurt you. It doesn't say that. Forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Now, folks, here's the thing, too. We're not going to roll back to that old covenant standard, right? A lot of times people want to go back to where Jesus said, you know, if you don't forgive, God will forgive you. That's an old covenant standard. It doesn't apply to us. It only applied to the Jew. The standard for us is the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. That's a freedom standard. That's where we want to be. That's, that's the level of freedom that we want to be operating in. Because listen, sometimes that forgiveness is going, to, is going to hit us and sometimes we're going to have to give it to other people. Because sometimes you need it and sometimes you need to give it. Do you really want to find yourself in a place where you're not being forgiven by someone because they don't grasp this principle, because not, they're not there at this standard? Because they want to hold something against you that God doesn't hold against you. So how do we get there? Well, in our time today, and we're going to move hopefully quickly through this, 
I want to help us get there. I want us to see several important principles about forgiveness that I think can bring liberty and freedom today, right now. I mean, in the next few minutes. There are people in this room who are here by divine appointment. God has you here. And it can make all the difference in the world. I'm going to give you six principles today. Here's the first one. They're in your notes. If you're taking notes, you want to write these down. Number one, forgiveness is a decision, not a feeling. It's a decision. Go ahead and tell me who it is. Who is, who is that person who has hurt you so deeply that you say, I can't forgive them? Can't forgive what they did. Ex-spouse? An old boss? Uh, maybe you came from an abusive family. Maybe we're talking about a mom, a dad, a brother, a sister. A co-worker, former teacher, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. What I want you to do is ask the Holy Spirit to bring to your mind any situation, any person where you need to offer forgiveness. It doesn't matter what they did, what they said, how they hurt you. Just ask the Holy Spirit to bring them to your mind. And for many of us, our first thought is, well, I don't want to forgive them. I don't feel like forgiving them. Well, of course you don't. That's understandable in a lot of cases. But let's just make sure when we say that, that we know that God's direction for us to forgive those who sin against us is not based on whether or not we feel like it. If we wait till we feel like forgiving someone, we're never going to forgive them. It's kind of like love in the New Testament. The, the, the Greek word for love that we find in the New Testament is agape. It means unconditional love. It's love without condition. It's love by decision, by an act of the will. It's not love that comes from emotion or feelings. It's a decision. I'm going to act in your best interest. I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be there for you. I'm going to, to love you, not based on how I feel, but based on my ability to think and to choose. Forgiveness is the same way. It's not a feeling. It's a decision. Listen, a follower of Jesus Christ ought to be maturing beyond being led around by your feelings. Because if you let your emotions and your feelings drag you around, you're going to be like, your life is going to be like this. It's going to be the wildest roller coaster you've ever been on. And when you feel good, man, you, nobody can top you. There's nothing higher. And when you feel bad, you can't plunge any lower. But what a miserable way to live. You know those people, don't you? It's drama of the week. It's crisis of the week. They bounce along from one bad, terrible thing happening in their life to the next. Because they're led around by their emotions. We have an opportunity to either be a thermometer or a thermostat. What's the difference? A thermometer just reflects the temperature in the room. Whatever the temperature in the room is, that's what shows up on the thermometer. But a thermostat controls the temperature, doesn't it? If it's too cold, it makes it warmer. If it's too warm, it makes it cooler. So we have a choice. We can just respond and react and to whatever goes on around us, or we can, with God's help, control our environment by how we respond. Now, the truth is, 
Forgiveness isn't natural. <laughs> That's why we're no good at it. What we're good at is holding grudges and revenge and violence and retribution. Forgiveness does not come naturally to us. That's why Paul doesn't say, watch me and how I forgive people and forgive people like that. That's why Paul doesn't say, watch Pastor Scott and how he forgives people and forgive people that way. Good Lord, don't do that. Okay? But you know what? I'm not going to watch you and how you forgive people and forgive people that way. That's not what Paul says. What Paul says is, look at Jesus and how he forgives. Because Jesus forgives people who aren't the slightest bit interested in being forgiven. He's on the cross, beaten to within an inch of his life abused and degraded and he looks out over the people that have done this to him and put him there and what does he say? Father, destroy them! Burn them up! Just let the earth open up and swallow them! That's what you and me would say. No, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you know that, that person you're, that you won't forgive is probably not aware of everything you're holding against them? They may have an idea, but they don't remember it in detail like you do. Jesus forgave me and you before we ever existed. Much less before we ever sinned. Before, but before you and I ever sinned, when every sin we would ever commit was in the future, Jesus forgave it. That's how Jesus forgives. I had an old preacher who used to say, if we sin a million times, Jesus forgives a million times. We can't out-sin Jesus. can't outsend his ability to forgive us. That's why I'm not called to forgive like you, and you're not called to forgive others like me. We are all called to forgive like Jesus. That's the standard. When John Wesley was a missionary in the early days of America, he met General James Oglethorpe, who was governor of Georgia. And their conversation turned to a man who was Oglethorpe's enemy. They, in fact, they hated each other. Both of them constantly tried to thwart one another's plans for whatever they, the other was doing. And in the course of that conversation, General Oglethorpe said, in relation to that man, I never forget and I never forgive. And John Wesley replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Let me tell you when you can afford to be unforgiving, when you never sin, when you never need forgiveness then you can afford to withhold forgiveness. But sometimes we need it. Sometimes we need to give it. And it's a decision that we make. It's not something that we feel. I'm not calling you today to get in an emotional place where you make a decision to forgive somebody. I'm telling you, you can make the decision in your mind and in your heart to extend forgiveness. Number two, forgiveness is releasing, not forgetting. 
releasing, not forgetting. We've all heard it and we've said it. Well, forgive and forget. But the truth is we're more like General Oglethorpe. You know, what we might, the best we might be able to do is say, well, I'll forgive you, but I'm never going to forget. And what we really mean when we say that is, I'll say you're forgiven. I'll say I forgive you, but I'm going to remember it. In fact, every time your name comes up, every time I, I, I picture your face, every time I, I, I hear about you, I'm going to remind myself of what you've done. And if I don't rehash the specific details, then I'm going to turn the dirt over on how I felt when you did what you did. And I'm just going to relive it again and again. Oh, but I've forgiven you. No, you really haven't. Because that's not real forgiveness. For starters, it doesn't take any effort to forget something. Right? Forgetting is a passive process. Nobody ever went, I'm going to forget this right now. Okay, there it is, gone. It just doesn't happen that way. Things just kind of slip away from us, don't they? They fade from our memories with the passing of time. Telephone numbers, names, birthdays, PIN numbers. Isn't it funny how some men forget their wedding anniversary, but they can remember the score of the 1988 Super Bowl? Redskins beat the Broncos 42-10 to 10 in San Diego. Doug Williams was the MVP. You can look it up. I was married sometime in July 1987. <laughs> you can look that up too. <laughs> when you do, tell me. It, the older we get, they say, our, the more our memory goes. That's because there's more to forget. <laughs> Think about it. That really is a good thing. Can you imagine having to, to keep everything that you've ever experienced or ever done in your head as a memory? Man, you talk about confused and cluttered. We'd be worse off then than we are now. It's just fascinating that we forget all these things, but we have crystal clear, 100% accurate, total recall when it comes to how another person hurt us or offended us. You ask me my cell phone number, you better give me a minute. Because I never call myself. Do you call yourself? That's weird if you do. If you call yourself and get your own voicemail, do you leave yourself a, a, a voicemail? <laughs> and how do you reply to that voicemail? But I'm going to tell you something. I can remember every detail of an offensive comment somebody made to me 25, 30, 35 years ago, 40 years ago. I can remember where we were standing. I can remember the room. I can tell you the weather outside the window. No, forgiving is not forgetting. It's making an active, conscious choice to not think about it, to not remember. That's the way God forgives us. In Isaiah chapter 43, verse 25, God says, I, yes, I alone will blot out your sins for my own sake and will never think of them again. Some translations say, I will remember them no more. Well, the Bible doesn't say that God forgets. God doesn't forget anything. When He forgives us, He chooses not to remember them. He chooses not to think about them. He chooses not to bring them up against us at some point in the future. When the first missionaries 
went to the Eskimos and were translating the Bible into the Inuit language. They found that the Eskimo word for forgive was a multi-word phrase which meant not being able to think about it anymore. And that's what true forgiveness is. It's not forgetting, it's choosing to not let the thoughts of that person or that hurtful uh, thing or that offense consume us and consume our thinking. And the spiritual paradox is when we forgive someone and we release them, the person who gets liberated is us. We're the one who gets set free. So why don't you try it? Go ahead, try it. Apply that to a person or a situation that you're struggling with. Make a choice to forgive them, to let it go and release them. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers who ever lived, said when you bury a mad dog, don't leave his tail sticking out of the ground. And that's what we need to do. We need to bury that thing in our subconscious and, and don't go digging for it anymore. And then here's number three. Forgiveness can be costly. So, so costly. You may remember a few months ago, we looked at the story Jesus told about the servant who owed his boss 10,000 talents. And you may recall that we said that, that a talent was a unit of measure. And depending on whether we were talking about silver talents or gold talents, that in today's economy, it meant that that man, that servant, owed his boss somewhere between $400 million and $50 billion. Now, that's a big debt. But you know, anything more than $400 million is just kind of relative, isn't it? And the servant begged his boss, give me more time to pay this off. Please extend you know, the period of my loan. Give me time to raise the money to repay you. And, the uh, and Jesus said that the boss felt compassion for the man. And he didn't just give him more time. He forgave the debt. He said, you don't owe me anymore. You're free now. You're unencumbered. It's incredible. <laughs> but then, more incredible, is that this forgiving servant goes out and he meets a friend, a co-worker, who owed him 100 denarii. A denarii was one day's wages. So average income, median income in the United States last year was, was a little over $50,000. So we're talking about twenty, twenty-five thousand. dollars $25,000. That's what the man owed him. And this, this servant who had been forgiven multi-million, even a multi-billion dollar debt by his boss, refuses to forgive the man who owes him $25,000. And the Bible says that he grabbed him by the neck and he took him off and had him thrown into jail. And then Big Boss heard about it. And the Bible says, in classic understatement, he was angry. Yeah, he was. He reinstated the debt. And he told the man, you're going to go to prison now until you pay off every penny. It was a life sentence. Where was he going to find that kind of money? The lesson should be obvious. God has forgiven us a debt that we could never pay. Man, if you want to start putting our sin debt in economic terms, turn to that story. What if you owed someone $400 million or $50 billion? I'd have to write them a check. Yeah, 
You couldn't pay it. I don't care what you did. And what if they said you're going to go to jail until you pay every penny? That's where we were, folks, in regard to our sin. We owed a debt we could never pay. It didn't matter how much time we were given. It would not matter what we did to try to pay that off. We couldn't pay it off. And God said, I forgive it. I forgive you. That debt is gone. So why do we think that we can hold another human being whose, whose debt to us is nowhere as big as our debt to God was? Why do we think we can withhold forgiveness from them? Well, you, you don't know what they said. Doesn't that sound increasingly lame and increasingly weak? the deeper we get into this issue of forgiveness. I know they mistreated you. I know they offended you. I know they hurt you. We offended God. We mistreated God. We hurt God. And he forgave us. Forgiveness is costly. It doesn't seem right. We're the ones that were hurt. We're the ones that were offended. Why should it cost us something? Well, in that parable Jesus told, forgiveness cost the boss billions of dollars. God's forgiveness to us, it's free, but it was not cheap. Because to purchase that, that freedom, to purchase that forgiveness, Jesus paid with his blood and with his life. It always costs something to forgive. If you let me borrow $1,000, I will not be able to pay you back. So it's going to cost you $1,000 to forgive me. You see how it works? You let your buddy borrow lunch money, and he doesn't pay you back. It's going to cost you that lunch money to forgive. It always costs something to forgive. But the cost of not forgiving is much higher. You ever heard or said this? I don't get mad, I get even. It's human nature to seek revenge. Some people are so full of unforgiveness that they will use every opportunity to hurt people who have hurt them. Even in death, some people try to extract revenge. Here are two actual bequests from the wills of some people who wanted to get even. One woman stipulated in her will, quote, one dollar from my estate be invested and the interest given to my husband as, my, as evidence of my estimate of his worth. That's rough. That is rough. But I don't know if this is any better. Another woman, why are these both women? Hmm. Another woman, another woman left this directive in her will. To my estranged husband, I leave just enough money to enable him to buy a rope to hang himself. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39, Jesus said something very interesting. He said, you have heard that the law says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sounds barbaric 
to us, doesn't it? That's from another age. But at the time the law was given, it really was a merciful thing. It, it, it said, you know, the revenge has to match the offense. Because think about it, if you're in a fight with somebody and they poke you, they gouge your eye out, you know, you're not going, oh my goodness, you gouged my eye out. This fight might be over. No, you go, I'm going to kill you. Right? You're out for blood. Somebody pops you, knocks your tooth out, I'm going to burn your house down. Well, this law prevented all that. This law said somebody gouges out your eye, the most you can do is gouge their eye out. Somebody knocks your tooth out, the worst you can do is knock their tooth out. It was, it was merciful. It limited the revenge that could be taken. But the sad truth is, as the old preachers used to say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth leaves the whole world blind and toothless. That's true. And so Jesus introduces the concept of grace. Not responding in anger, not giving people what they deserve, but giving them what they need. Forgiveness. It was nothing short of revolutionary. And it still is. Forgiveness is expensive. But not nearly as expensive as seeking revenge. Number four. Forgiveness is impossible without God's power. Forgiveness is impossible without God's power. It's one of the hardest things that we'll ever do, forgiving someone. Maybe you heard about the man who was trying to cross the street. And he stepped off the curb and started just a few steps when a car came screaming around the corner heading right for him. And he tried to speed up to maybe go ahead and get across, and the car veered again, continuing straight forward. And so he thought he would retreat back to the curb, so he starts backing up to the curb, and again the car adjusts, and it's coming directly at him, and he's frozen in fear in the middle of the street, and the car comes screaming by him and stops right in front of him. And the window rolls down, and there's a squirrel driving. And the squirrel says, It ain't as easy as it looks, is it, big boy? That's run crazy squirrel. But forgiveness is not as easy as it sounds either. In fact, without God's power, it's impossible. You know, when we say, I can't forgive them, we're telling the truth. We can't. Not without God's help. God can forgive them through us. If we're going to truly forgive, we need to ask God to help us make and keep four commitments of real forgiveness. These are not in your notes, and you can write them down if you want to. I'm going to go through them very quickly, but they, there are some copies of these four things available at the Welcome Center if you want to grab one after the service. Here's the four commitments of true forgiveness, real forgiveness. Number one, I will not think about this incident. It's impossible for us to forget, but we can think about something else. We can put it out of our minds and choose not to think about it. Number two, I will not try to harm you because of this incident. That means we've released them from our desire to take revenge on them. Now, hear what I said and don't hear what I didn't say. 
If someone's committed a crime, forgiveness does not prevent the law or the courts from, from carrying out civil justice. But it does mean that you and I, that we don't become the judge, the jury, and the executioner because of what that person has done. Number three, I will not bring this incident up again. Man, that commitment all by itself would bring a lot of healing to many marriages. Man told his friend, when my wife and I argue, she gets all historical. His friend said, don't you mean hysterical? He said, no, historical. She reminds me of everything I've ever done. <laughs> when God forgives our sin, the Bible says he buries it in the depths of the sea and he never goes fishing for it again. When you forgive someone, don't keep bringing it up. And number four, I will not let this incident stand between us. True forgiveness clears the decks so that a broken relationship can be restored. That's what happened when God forgave us. The wall of separation between us and God came down, was broken down. His forgiveness removed it so that we could be restored to a relationship with Him. But now, somebody might ask, well, what if the person who has hurt me doesn't want a relationship with me? What if that person hasn't asked for forgiveness? Should I still forgive them? That leads us to number five. Very important, number five. Forgiveness is not reconciliation. See, forgiveness is unilateral. It only takes one person. Reconciliation is bilateral. It takes two people. The one who offers grace and the one who accepts it. The Bible says, in a, in a fascinating passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians, that God is no longer holding the sins of men against them. Isn't that amazing? It, it is, it's nothing short of stunning given our preoccupation with sin. Is this a sin, Pastor? Is that a sin? Is what that person did a sin, Pastor? If, can I do, how much of this can I do and not be sinning, Pastor? You wouldn't believe how much I hear about that. And I want to take people directly to this verse and say, look, will you see, can you see this? God is no longer holding the sins of men against them. He's made a unilateral offer of forgiveness and grace to every person in the world just because he wants to, because he wants to be reconciled to us. But does that mean every person in the world is saved and that every person in the world accepts his grace? Unfortunately, no. Reconciliation with God occurs when we turn from our sin and accept his graceful offer of salvation. God doesn't require that we beat ourselves up or we prove ourselves worthy or we come crawling to him on our hands and knees before he offers forgiveness. He just says, come, just as you are, and I forgive you. The most basic definition of grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited. Nothing we can do to deserve it, to earn it. It's giving someone what they need, not what they deserve. Because truthfully, if someone has hurt us, they don't deserve to be forgiven. But grace forgives them anyway. We don't wait for them to come crawling to beg us for forgiveness. We make the choice, the decision to unilaterally forgive them. Now, best case scenario is they accept our forgiveness and the relationship is reconciled. 
But there's always the possibility that the other person will reject our offer. That they don't want our offer of forgiveness. If they do, then, then there can be no reconciliation, but we can be assured that we've done everything God has asked us to do. In Romans chapter 12, the Bible says this, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scripture says, I will take revenge. I will pay them back, says the Lord. Now the Bible does not say live at peace with everyone. The Bible says do all you can do. That's all you can do. There are some people who will reject reconciliation. They don't want to live in peace. If that's the case, you go ahead and forgive them and you move on. I read about an attorney who, who came, became a Christian and, and became, came under such conviction uh, when he heard the message of, con, of forgiveness that he decided he would forgive long-term, long-standing debt that some clients owed him. And so he sat down and he wrote a letter explaining his decision and explaining the biblical basis for his decision, really somewhat witnessing to these clients. And he sent letters to 17 of his, of his former clients. He sent the, the letters by registered mail. Of the 17 letters, 16 of them were returned unsigned for and undelivered. Now you know why, don't you? For the same reason you don't open that bill, right? You don't open that notice. It, it gets accidentally thrown in the garbage, accidentally gets in with the, the old newspapers because we don't want to see the bad news that's inside. These people assumed if they were getting a letter, a registered letter from an attorney, it must be because he was doing what? Suing them for their debt. So they, they never had an idea that the letters were good news, informing them that the debt was canceled. So they refused to sign. They had it sent back, returned to sender. Some of those clients later tried to pay part of their debt, and they were shocked to find out there was no debt. It had been canceled. They didn't owe anything. Other clients never paid, never showed their faces in that attorney's office again. And, and you know what? I bet they lived in fear every day when they went to their mailbox. I bet every knock on the door, I bet every strange person they saw, they thought, oh, I'm about to get served. Who knows for how long? They were never reconciled with the lawyer. And you know, a lot of people miss out on a relationship with God. And he has sent us a letter. Uh, he sent us a letter to let us know that our debt of sin is canceled. Some of us don't even bother to read it. We don't even open it. God offers forgiveness to everyone. But reconciliation depends on accepting his grace. And here's our final principle, number six. Forgiveness heals the one who forgives. You, you've heard me say it before. I don't even know where I first heard it. Like I can't even cite a source. This is how long I've been saying this. Unforgiveness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. 
a variation on that. I heard someone say, uh, unforgiveness is us building a prison. And only when it's too late, only when the last block is laid, only when the, the iron door swings closed, realizing that the prisoner is us. It's not the person that we refuse to forgive. We only hurt ourselves when we refuse to forgive. We're the ones who can't sleep. We're the one whose blood pressure goes up. We're the one who become negative and bitter and filled with anger and resentment. And all the while, we think we're punishing the other person. Well, what we're really doing is injuring ourselves. If you're carrying a grudge towards someone who has wounded you, hurt you, offended you, do yourself a favor and forgive them. I want you to try an experiment. Some of you may have been here. We've done this before, but I want everybody to do this. is an all-skate. I want everybody to participate, please. I want you to hold your right hand up like this and then make a fist tight as you can. Squeeze tight. Squeeze as tight as you can and hold it. Do not let it go until I tell you to let it go, okay? Squeeze tight. After only a few seconds, it starts to hurt a little bit, doesn't it? Don't let go yet. Now imagine what it would feel like to maintain that tight grip for days, weeks. Don't let go. Squeeze. Months years decades don't let go yet this is what unforgiveness does to your heart you may not feel it physically at first but when you hold on to the sins and shortcomings of others it hurts you forgiveness literally means to release Go ahead and let go. Wow, doesn't that feel better? It's amazing how good that feels. That's what forgiveness can do for you. That's what forgiveness can do for us. There's an old oriental proverb that says, if you refuse to forgive, then dig two graves. But some of us, honestly, need to take a trip out to the cemetery of forgiveness. And we need to take all of the wounds and all of the hurts and all of the offenses and all the mistakes, all the evil that other people have committed against us, and we need to dig a hole in the ground and bury it there forever. Never dig it up again. And the person that hurt us or offended us they don't have to be there. They don't have to attend the funeral. Just stick it in the ground and leave it there. When we do that, we are setting ourselves free from the misery and torment that they have given us, that we have endured because of them. We set ourselves free. We have been offered by God forgiveness. Free for the taking. And so we should be willing to forgive others, but we can't do it alone. It takes God's power to help us forgive those who have hurt us. If somebody has wounded you, why do you continue day after day to let them have power over you? 
Why do you continue to think about them and what they've done day after day? Is it helping you at all? Is it advancing you? Is it healing you? Is it helping you? No. Release them. Forgive them. To err is human. But to give is divine. To, to forgive feels divine. Bow your heads, please. Close your eyes.